For those of you who listen to my podcast or read my blog, you know that I talk quite a lot about shared leadership between the board and staff, the importance of them working in partnership. I use the metaphor of a twin-engine jet with the CEO and the board chair sitting in the cockpit together. But what if there's a unique partnership inside your organization? What if that partnership is hardwired into the design of your organization, like, say, an arts organization, where the artistic director either reports directly to the board along with the CEO, or where the principal conductor, by virtue of the kind of organization, has a unique power that can make the internal leadership of the organization tricky. This is a topic I've wanted to explore for some time. How can a CEO and a lead artistic director in an organization work together, lead together, in a way that results in the management of an organization where the tension actually creates beautiful music? Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. To explore the relationship between the creative lead and the organizational lead in an arts nonprofit, all I had to do was swim across the Hudson River from New Jersey to the internationally recognized Orchestra of St. Luke's. The Orchestra of St. Luke's is one of America's most celebrated and innovative orchestras. Each year it performs over 80 concerts in 19 venues, nearly half free to the public. Its education programs span from Carnegie Hall to all five boroughs. And in 2011, OSL opened the Domenis Center for Classical Music, a state-of-the-art rehearsal and recording facility where 500 ensembles comprising 30,000 have created work. OSL's president and executive director is Jim Rowe. He joined OSL in this role in, this role in 2015 after a successful run as the president and CEO of the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, where Jim and I first met. Jim is a part of a growing cohort of orchestra executives who moved into their roles directly from the orchestra itself, where he was a successful professional oboist. In fact, he knows OSL quite well because he performed with that orchestra for nearly two decades. He's now come home to OSL in quite a different capacity. Bernard Labadie has established himself worldwide as a leading conductor of Baroque and classical repertoire. Maestro Labadie is the founding conductor of Le Violin du Roi and La Chapelle de Québec. With these two ensembles regularly tours Canada, the US, and Europe at major venues such as Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Walt Disney's Concert Hall, the Kennedy Center, the Salzburg Festival, among others. His credentials are lengthy, impressive, and would require a continued butchering of the Romance language of French if I were to continue. So let's just say, in summary, that we're talking to two highly accomplished gentlemen charged with making beautiful music together, music that has the power to connect people, transform lives. And I think one of the reasons I'm really happy to be talking to these two men is because it's hard not to focus on the fact that our world feels pretty ugly these days. So spending a few minutes talking to two men who bring such beauty to people seems like a really good way to spend a few minutes. So Jim, let's start with you. As you know, the structure of a nonprofit typically has all staff reporting into a CEO, and arts organizations are often different. The skill sets are really different, or they can be. 
So I know that at OSL, the principal conductor is hired by the executive director. But many orchestras, including the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, have that joint leadership model. But even if not on paper, the principal conductor has unique power. So how should the relationship work? What's it supposed to look like when when it's at its best? And who's in charge, or is that really a, a valid or even an appropriate question? Joan, it's so great to talk to you, and I'm so happy to introduce you to Bernard. Um, in terms of who is in charge, uh, you could ask what is the res- final responsibility for the success of the organization, and that does fall to the executive director. Ultimately, the president or the executive director is hired to provide strategic leadership for the company, whereas the principal conductor provides artistic leadership for the performances. When these two leaders work in concert with each other, there is an internal alignment that hopefully will have um, external enthusiasm for the orchestra's work. And regardless of the reporting structure, uh, the conductor does not have an official governance role in the organization or with the board, and they almost are never involved uh, with labor negotiations. So so there are things that um, the conductor is shielded from, and there are things that, of course, he has relied, he or she has relied upon by the CEO to accomplish. And is that um, that model that you have just described, regardless of the reporting structure? Does that so 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 regardless of the reporting structure, um, governance is governance is your purview and not Bernard's. Indeed, that's right. So uh, Bernard may attend a, uh, a board member from time to time uh, to give a special presentation, but uh, would not be ever a member of the board and uh, wouldn't be involved with sort of official policy. So, so Bernard, is there anything that you would add to that? And the question was, what's it supposed to what's it supposed to look like when it's at its best? Well, first of all, thank you for having us, uh, Joe. Yes. Uh, we're very, very happy to uh, to talk to your uh, to your audience through you. Um, I would say that uh, I totally agree with everything that uh, Jim has said. I would even add that um, I don't think. There are many conductors on this planet who would like to be involved in governance (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because this is very much about nuts and bolts. And I think it's important as artists that we be able to focus on what is our uh, mission and purpose. And sometimes if you are, if you get involved a little too much in governance or even just the, 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 let's say the, the, the reality surrounding it, you can at certain point even lose part of your energy and and, and your focus. This has happened to me in my life previously, actually. So when uh, OSL came to me, uh, and and they defined very clearly what my role would be, and I was actually absolutely and totally happy to with that uh, with that role because it reflects where my priorities priorities are. Um, That is to make the best music possible. And uh, governance is something that needs to be attended by other people uh, in order for me to be able to achieve that goal. So, Bernard, um, have you been in other situations where the boundaries were not as clear as they are at OSL? Uh, Yes, absolutely. First of all, whenever you 
create your own ensemble as I did uh, 34 years ago uh, with Les Vionnons de Roi in Quebec City, uh, you're involved in everything. So the, it's, it's not, there's not even a line between governments and, and artistic responsibilities. It's just one big pot. And with time, as the organization grows, then the lines appear. And, uh, and I can say that I, 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 I think the, the way to, uh, to function uh, is really to have strong governance, uh, which is provided by uh, the CEO and the board, uh, in, in, great, in a spirit of great collaboration with the artistic side of the, of the operation. There's, and, and I would say that in the end, we are condemned to <laughs> get along well. <laughs> because it's the only way that an organization like that can thrive and blossom. So uh, I'm going to ask a, a somewhat provocative question then. So, um, so, so I, ha I happen to know that when Jim was at the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, that's a, that was a dual report, right, Jim? So that yes. you report to the board as well as the principal conductor. I'm not sure what the title was at that time. Um, uh, and so that, that dual report... Uh, you know, I would think, Bernard, that there are uh, that are conductors that want that kind of prestige and access to the board. And I just wondered if when you came to OSL and recognized that, that it wasn't structured that way, it sounds like that made you kind of happy, but are there those people that for whom that would be a problem because it actually kind of increases your prestige and your access to the power base of the board if you report into them? Well, one has to make a very clear difference between music directorship and being principal conductor. And mm. when OSL approached me, it was very clear that my title would be principal conductor, um, simply because OSL does not have a music director by essence. Artistically, it's governed by the musicians themselves who founded the, the organization. So this is something very specific, very special. Not many groups uh, in, uh, in North America work that way. So for me, things were absolutely clear from the beginning. Uh, as music director, one might want to have a more direct access to the board. I would say every situation is different. It depends on the people you work with. It depends on the context, the, 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 the history of the relationship. Uh, but what I can say is that as far as I'm concerned with OSL, I'm extremely happy where I am right now and with the kind of relationship that I enjoy with Jim, uh, with board members, and with the whole staff. And, of course, with the musicians, which is my, my, my primary concern and purpose in this whole thing. So... Oh, Jim, did you want to jump in? I did want to jump in. You know, it's it's interesting, regardless of the um, reporting structure, and there are examples um, throughout America of both uh, both forms of that, the connection that a board has to a conductor tends to be more emotional than the connection to the president and CEO. Um, and the, the work of the conductor is a cult. It's magical. Uh, the, the conductor creates art, um, uh, that is invisible and moves everyone. Whereas um, the CEO, of course, the the work of the CEO is much more um, measurable in a sense, and it is something that is in the realm of most board members. So uh, the connection with the CEO is very different. And so maintaining the correct balance of you know that emotional connection to one leader and sort of a more managerial connection to the other um it's some it's sometimes like having um two parents and i won't 
assign any particular roles to either one. But, um, <laughs> you know, you go to one parent for one thing and the other parent for the other. It's interesting. I have a number of clients in the faith community. And I was just really thinking about this as you were talking, Jim, that so, you know, I work for a number of faith-based or a couple of Jewish organizations where the CEO is a rabbi. And it's interesting as you say this, because embedded in that one person is the CEO who reports to the board, but also there is, as you can imagine, a very deep emotional connection to the CEO who is also a rabbi who leads a movement and, um, and who is, you know, essentially a spiritual leader not just the CEO. And so, um, I find that, I find that challenging when I work with clients in that sphere because of the, I was going to say the two hats, but maybe I should say the two yarmulkes. Um, <laughs> And so maybe having that having that bifurcated a bit is a little less complicated in some ways. Um, I wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning, Jim, about strategy. So yes, there's tons of things in your role that are measurable. Did you increase fundraising year over year? Did you um, were there you know sort of more butts and seats? Did you, you know, reach more people? Were you more visible? All of those kinds of things. But strategy, strategy is a really interesting word, I think, when it comes to arts organizations. And you, you talk about the CEO being responsible for the strategic leadership of the organization. And the, in this case, Bernard being responsible for the artistic portion of the work. And I, I'd actually love to hear what both of you have to say regarding the word strategy as it relates to art, right? What does it mean? And there's, it's clearly what Bernard is in, engaged in is critical and vital to a successful strategy. So how, how, do, you, how do you make that work? Oh, tease that out for us. Yeah, I, I, I would love to. Um, I think it, it goes to, to really, if you're able to define um, the mission of an orchestra, and there's orchestras all around the country, but they they and they, each one has its own uh, mission statement. But basically, all orchestra mission statements are alike. The mission of an orchestra is to enrich the lives of its community through performance and education. And so, then when it comes to to strategy and how strategy intersects with the artistic work of the orchestra, uh, you have to understand how the artistic work connects to the business. And so you know, orchestras are not profits. We're funded by a combination of earned revenue, generally through ticket sales and, uh, and contributions. Uh, when you look at the profile of contributions, who, who, what is the class of people who uh, will not only buy a ticket, but, but um, uh, make a donation on top? And uh, that profile of contributed revenue is usually very high in terms of individuals. Corporations, yes, some. Foundations, yes, some. But primarily, it's individuals who are writing those checks that keeps keep an orchestra running. And who are those people? They're the people that are in the houses night after night. They're the people in the audience. The two primary drivers for contributions um, come from attendance patterns 
comes from frequency and tenure. So people coming often and for coming often year after year after year gives them the propensity to, to support the organization. The good news behind all of this is that the vitality and the dynamism of the art form is what makes people come back, bring their friends, sign up for the next year. And so um, I, I think there's a way of thinking about these organizations that ties business success and mission success together, and it really is all driven by really great, compelling art. Um, Bernard, I, I wonder if you could address the same question, sort of this notion of strategy and the intersection of strategy and your artistic vision for OSL? Well, as Jim was explaining, um, his role as a CEO makes him very much the, 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 the permanent public face of the organization. He is there in the office on a daily basis with his staff. He meets with people. He courts uh, patrons, uh, concert goers. He builds networks and, and, and uh, uh, almost webs of, of relationships that are absolutely quintessential to the uh, survival and, and evolution of the organization. The, the music director or principal conductor is not in the office on a daily basis. And I think it's a very good thing uh, because it brings a certain distance or let's say a different perspective, which, uh, which is very beneficial to the organization. And that distance is also beneficial to the principal conductor or, 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 or music director. What I mean by that is that uh, by coming to the organization on a regular basis, but not being there all the time, you bring in different experiences, different views, different ideas, uh, which uh, might bring yeah, new water to the well, uh, and which might be a part of what you would call a, a strategy. Uh, the, the people who work in the office on a permanent basis know the nuts and bolts and, and everything, uh, but sometimes also they're confronted with the reality to the extent that it's not always easy for people working in an office full-time to take some distance artistically uh, in terms of, of, of uh, feeding and nourishing the mission. So um, the, the music director or the principal conductor, uh, when it comes to strategy, is kind of the, the person who brings in different, a different input coming from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. and the, the collaboration with the CEO and the staff, but especially with the CEO, is absolutely essential to turning into turning all of these these feeds into a viable strategy because the ideas or concepts uh, that uh, the principal conductor might bring in are not necessarily adaptable to the milieu where the organization lives all the time. Uh, we need this 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 kind of I wouldn't even call it tension because it's it's the way we live it at OSL. It's definitely not attention, but there's this there are these moments during the year when we just we reconvene. And uh, the, the, the CEO and the staff has worked extensively on, on, on so many things. And the artistic person who has different uh, uh, jobs and, and different experiences somewhere else just brings it with, with a different viewpoint. And it's the, it's, I, would, I would compare it to the point where uh, 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 salt water would meet fresh water when a river, when a river meets an ocean, 
the combination of both creates a, 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 a living milieu which which is home to food and 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 everything that will support uh, the the uh, the ecology of, of the milieu. This is this not not conflicting, but but um, I mean different approaches have to melt at some juncture and. The, it kind of, of boils to a certain extent, and, and, and some fabulous things can come, come out of it. So in terms of strategy, uh, it's, it's something that we create together, and it's, it's basically thinking ahead, knowing where we want to be in a year, in two years, and in three years. And in order to do that, you need both people who, you need, you need people who are you know, in the workplace all the time, who are connected to, to the milieu, and you need other people like a principal conductor or a music director who come from outside and mingle and bring a different energy. And, and, and from this clash of, of, of different things uh, can come out some very, very beautiful things. One of the things that strikes me, you, you indicated that that you and um, that you and Jim are not co-located, and it strikes me that there have to be some structures and processes in place so that the two of you are, you know, in alignment or talking about all of these things um, pretty often. I, I would think, and I just wondered, Bernard, Bernard sort of. As you know, you're relatively new to OSL, and what structures and processes have you know have you put in place to create a open dialogue, strong communication? Especially knowing that um, that you are not you know you don't see Jim every day in the office. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I couldn't identify a structure uh, per se or something like that. But the key to what we are doing, what we've been doing since my appointment uh, earlier this year, last year actually, uh, is meeting and meeting for real with everyone involved on a regular basis. It's meet and talk and talk and meet and exchange. There's no and usually, you have time to make music in that with oh, all those meetings. No, you should see my schedule when I'm in, in New York. Actually, <laughs> there's a lot of rehearsal and there's a lot of meetings, and, and I often try to arrive a bit earlier or, or leave a bit later so that there's there because nothing replaces this this, this exchange. I believe strongly in uh, in the the power of of uh, persuasion, the power of um, coming to ideas, to projects by by uh, by exchanging our ideas. I never see myself as someone who has to impose something. Or, or if if I have to work too hard at convincing Jim uh, or the board or anybody in that organization, I have to convince them too hard about a project. It's because it's the wrong one. No, and that's so interesting. So it's it's it's. It's important when you talk to be just, you're just not there to defend a vision or something. You're there to create a common vision. And I think the word common is the key word here, that it has to be something that we share, that we believe in. And in that, I include the musicians who have, I mean, some of these people have been in the orchestra for uh, over 40 years. Uh, so what do they, where do they see themselves in a few years? What do, what do they think uh, what kind of music do they have, do they have in, in, in their head? 
these are all things that are very, very important. And you cannot build the common house without, uh, without the help of everyone. Well, and it was interesting. You, um, uh, you sent me an email the other day and, uh, and you said nobody can work in a closet, uh, as, as someone who, uh, ran a gay rights organization for quite a while, I could tell you that actually lots of folks do work in closets, but I, I'm thinking that's not what you meant. But well, I'm thinking word, that you. The word silo would have been. But I'm thinking. But I. But I think to your point, this is about a lot of relationships that need to be navigated and fostered and cultivated from the, you know, from the musicians to your relationship with Jim and you know that that, that really is a village of people you have to be. You know, you have to have your finger on the pulse of a lot of different kinds of people. Jim? You have, you have, to, you have to keep in mind that as conductors, we're not supposed to make any noise on the stage, which means that we rely on people to make the music. People is the essence of the operation. Music is by people for people. Go ahead, Jim. You had something to say. I was going to say, and and because the way Orchestra of St. Luke's works, in that we have relationships, uh, presenting relationships with Carnegie Hall, with with Caramore, um, uh, the music festival where we play in the summer, we have to consider their needs as well. So the the network of of um, of organizations is not just ours, but it's the other organizations. Their needs both budgetary and their needs in terms of audience uh, development. So it's, in a sense, it's this wonderful um, three-dimensional chess game uh, that we play. <laughs> well, I guess it's wonderful when it, when it works. Well, uh, no one can win a concert. So in, in a sense, <laughs> it's not... <laughs> Um, so we are talking with the president and CEO and the principal, principal conductor of the Orchestra of St. Luke's. Jim Rowe and Maestro Bernard Labadie. OSL is one of America's foremost and most versatile orchestras, regularly collaborating with the world's greatest artists and performing over 80 concerts a year, including its Carnegie Hall Orchestra Series. We're sort of chatting about the kind of shared leadership an arts organization has to have on the inside to make beautiful music. So I I wanted to, um, Bernard, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, uh, I, I read uh, an article in the New York Times from earlier this year, not long after you were appointed principal conductor, and um, I, I know that you have been battling a serious illness, and um, one of the things you said in that piece was that it, the illness had sort of forced you to rethink your job and the role of the conductor, and I guess, I guess you had to sit at some points, and you said, I had, I had a feeling that that I'm more in the music with the musicians. I'm not towering over them. I really feel first among peers. And I wondered, you know, we, we made a specific point that the gym was plucked out of the orchestra into a leadership position. Um, and I wondered how that translates with your relationship to your relationship with Jim. Um, here he is a guy who really is, in his heart, you know, really is a professional musician. And um, how does this notion about being in the music with the mission, with the musicians and sort of your relationship with Jim recognizing that his roots are right there in the orchestra with you? Well, you have no idea how much of a privilege it is to collaborate with a CEO 
who knows the stuff <laughs> with a CEO who's been in there, who, who is aware of artistic realities, because uh, it's, it's, it's not always the case. And yes, a few and, and more and more actually CEOs come out of, of the ranks of orchestras, but, uh, but not all of them. And I've, over my long career, I've collaborated with, you know, dozens of them, um, either as, as a music director or guest conductor here and there. And I can tell you that there's a huge difference between people who have always you know contemplating music from from the bleachers uh and and people who have actually played the game uh it's like in football some people will tell you yes you can have some good football coaches who are not players but most of them were players and to some, for me, there's something very very similar to that because i because i have the feeling that joe that jim understands uh, what we're trying to do from the inside and he we are able to exchange about that. I mean, our discussions are not only about, you know, programs and money and budgets and things like that. We also talk on a regular basis about how the orchestra is doing, how people are doing, how things are evolving. He's, while he respects my authority in artistic matters, he is very much involved in that, as he should be. And I think it's, it's a huge uh, advantage to, to, to have a collaborator like Jim, who really he's been on, on both sides of the ball to take, to push the football metaphor forward. Yep. Um, Jim, Jim, let's, let me ask you the question from, from your perspective. So how did being a performer prepare you to be a CEO and, and how does that inform your relationship with Bernard? Uh, since I became a CEO, uh, at the New Jersey Symphony Orchestra, I've been asked this question a lot. And um, I have to say that, uh, you know, being a professional oboist for 20 years, it puts you in the middle of the stage. And uh, apologies to Bernard and all conductors, but from time to time, you look past the conductor into the audience. And so for 20 years, I watched thousands of faces of people experiencing concerts in real time. I saw when, when, something landed and moved them. I saw when things weren't landing and people were not moved. Uh, but it really underscored for me so, so strongly that the mission of the organization of an orchestra is not accomplished at the edge of the stage. It's accomplished in the hearts and uh, the ears of, of the people in our community. And so, you know, just witnessing all those faces, I brought those faces with me into the office. And, um, and that for me has, has taken out a certain tension between artistic product and so um, marketing concerns, because I feel like we have to be united around serving the needs of those, those people. Um, when it comes to uh, my relationship with Bernard, you know, it's interesting. I've never played for Bernard. He's never heard me play. I hope he would like it. Uh, we'll... <laughs> we, we, we can take care of that with the podcast if you no, want. No, no, you'll never hear me play. I've been retired for too long now. But um, I, I do feel this sense when when I'm talking to him that um, that we're we're speaking the same language artistically. Um, I think we have really shared um, aesthetic visions, uh, which, is, which is nice, but even if they were different, we would speak the same language. And, and I might say, reference something that Bernard mentioned in the first half of the podcast, which was when he started uh, his two ensembles, he was involved in all aspects, both business and artistic. And 
you know, when I was talking to the board about uh, hiring Bernard uh, and talking to the orchestra and the staff as well, the thing I kept coming back to was here is, here is an artist who built an organization to a level of international prestige. He's an organization builder. He understands what it takes for an organization to work. I think he's very happy to leave a lot of that to me. But when I'm talking to Bernard, I feel like we are speaking not just a shared artistic language, but also a shared management language. And I couldn't think uh, of a better partner um, for me at this time than Bernard. You know, you, you two guys have this seemingly down pretty pretty well. I'm, I'm thinking maybe I should have asked for a more dysfunctional, booked a more dysfunctional pair. Um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I wanted to get back. Uh, I wanted to get back to this question about sort of artistic vision and um, Bernard. You said something like super generous, which is if I'm pushing for something and it's not landing, and I keep pushing and I make my best my, my, sort of my best effort, and it's not landing, then I probably need to rethink my sort of idea or my vision. Um, I, I would guess, Jim Rowe, that, that isn't, that's an unusual attitude in, in this sector, whether it's music or theater or dance, um, that this emotional tie that you describe that the board has, like it just would seem to me that, that what shows up on the stage or what audiences listen to is so important that it would that a, a, someone like Bernard could flex his muscle in a way because of that emotional tie to, you know, the board members or to you as a CEO. Um, am I, am I off base no. there or is there some element of truth to that? You're not off base at all. And I think that um, when the reporting structure is set up so that both CEO and uh, and music director or conductor answer to the board, it does two things. It, it protects the organization in case there's a rift between the two. And the board then has the strategic um, uh, power, I guess, to, to, to make choices for the sake of the organization um, when that relationship is not working. Um, also, when that relationship is not working well, uh, there is there are direct lines to govern governance uh, to the to the board leadership um, with the two uh, the two leaders and that can that can cause um, that can cause conflicts that are unhealthy for the organization certainly right um, so we we're almost out of time here um, and I wondered if it's too bad I'm just flexing my muscles right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't we? Don't we wish this was video? We'd like to see Bernard <laughs> his muscles. The, um, you know, we're we're in a, uh, you know, as I said at the very beginning of this podcast, we're in a in a landscape, uh, a world that feels uncertain and divisive, and um, certainly, you know, those uh, those arts organizations that 
receive government funding have to be, and I know this, or anxious because of the uncertainty of where the world is headed and where the government is headed and all of that. And I just wondered if each of you, just in, you know, in, as we close this out, could really talk about both the sort of the challenges that American orchestras um, are facing and, um, and, and maybe your sense of, because uh, you don't want to, you don't want to end the podcast on the, on the challenge part. You want to end it on the opportunity part. So, the, you know, what do you see is, uh, I guess start with Jim, what you see is some of the challenges facing American orchestras and, um, and what you see is some of the sort of the opportunities given the, the world we live in today. Yeah, I think uh, the challenge facing American orchestras uh, is building a sustainable nonprofit business that creates value for its community. And you can unpack any of those words and get deep into the weeds with, with a lot of uh, really complicated problems, complicated shifts in society. But in the end, when you're sitting in the audience and watching a concert, you can marvel at this very messy, to steal your word, Joan, this, this very messy group of people that somehow comes together and and creates a communal expression of beauty. Uh, an orchestra concert is entirely handmade. It's one of a kind. There's, there'll never be another one. And also it's largely a non-political space. Um, so I think that it's an act of radical service to our society to create a place where people can go and disconnect from CNN and disconnect from their cell phones and watch this this fragile beast that is an orchestra creates something together that couldn't exist without all the people on stage and off uh, working so hard together. So, um, you know, it's it's hard work. It's expensive and unwieldy to do this work. But in the end, to be a part of this expression of what a community seeks in beauty is uh, it's a great privilege. Well, I'm I'm, I'm going to give Bernard the last word here, but but I'm going <clears> to. <throat> Just jump in and say it, it's also clear to me that one of the the challenges, and maybe I'm wrong actually, but that one of the one of the challenges with arts in general, whether it's orchestra or theater, or, um, is uh, is building the audience of tomorrow, and so I, you know the graying of the the arts audience and ticket buyers, and I have a client that I work with in the Bay Area who runs a children's theater program. And we've been working on garnering visibility for um, children's theater, both as a way to celebrate bringing families together in a joyful way in a world that doesn't always feel very joyful, but also about, you know, if you can ignite um, kids' interest in the arts or theater or dance or music, um, those are, that's, you know, there's a, there's a, pretty direct path from yes. there to sitting in the audience at Carnegie Hall. And, um, and it, you know, it strikes me that many of these um, arts organizations that are focused on young people don't really realize that they're sort of helping to build the audience of the future for folks like you guys. Well, and in fact, we're deeply involved with that work as well. Um, if you think about it, we give around 80 concerts a year, nearly half of them are free. And those concerts are part of an extensive uh, five borough, uh, 19 venue uh, uh, set of programs in education and community engagement. And so we consider both parts of the business being equally important. What I love about our players is that they play with the same 
theater, the same excellence on the stage of Carnegie Hall um, as they do when they're at a community center in the Bronx. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So Bernard, <laughs> so Bernard, I'll give you the last word here. Sort of challenges in the in the orchestra sector and uh, and the opportunities and gifts. Well, of all the, the many fabulous things that uh, Jim has just said, there's one word that resonates with me in a, in a special way, and it's community. And I say that coming from a country, Canada, uh, that uh, where governments support the arts much more than, 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 than in the U.S., um, uh, and some artistic institutions in Canada are actually you know, supported in, in, uh, strongly by governments. Uh, and as a Canadian conductor, to be involved in the nuts and bolts of, of such a great organization like OSL, it makes me realize how everything lies with the ties to the community, uh, because there's simply almost no money, no money coming from the government. Everything has to be has to be raised. Everything has to be funded, people. And and so we are again condensed to relevance <laughs> towards that community. And and for me, this this kind of all-in approach, uh, which goes from top to bottom, that is, and, 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 and what Jim said about the fact that the musicians play the same way, either at Carnegie or in a small community church somewhere uh, in the boroughs, uh, this is so amazingly true. And that's something that I have witnessed, that I have witnessed, that I have experienced with these, these players. Um, and and I, I just, as a newcomer, really as a new member of the family, coming from a different country, I marvel at the strength of of, of that side of, of the organization. That that the fact that we we are embedded in communities and we live by them and for them. I may not be out of questions, but I am actually out of time. So I think that's a good place to stop. I just wanted to say two things in closing and in, in, in expressing my appreciation to both of you. First, to Jim, to um, uh, continued success. Uh, how how wonderful I know it is for you to return sort of home to OSL after being a member of the orchestra there for so long. And it is just such, um, so wonderful to watch what's happening at OSL under your leadership. So thank you so much. And um, Bernard, I I wanted to also say that, Although we have not met, um, I appreciated very much the opportunity to get to know you a little bit this this on this uh, podcast, and um, you really did uh, you really did luck out in a partner in Jim Rowe, and it sounds like the reverse is also true. And what I wish you most is uh, that you make beautiful music and that you um, that your health uh, that your health stays with you. Thank you so much. I have to say, I feel I'm one of the luckiest men alive right now. <laughs> um, it feels like you have much to be thankful for. Um, yes, I do. And speaking of thankful, uh, as always, I am so thankful to all of you for listening in. I am more thankful for the work you every that you do every day to repair the world in ways large and small. You can um, find resources that we provide Uh, in a variety of different ways. You can check out my blog, which you can subscribe to at joangary with two rs.com. I do not barrage you with emails, just one a week with actionable and practical advice. 
Um, there are many topics in our podcast that you may find of value as a staff leader or a board leader. Um, I wouldn't mind at all if you went over to Amazon and took a look at my book, which is actually also intended for board and staff leaders, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, What a Novel Top. Uh, what a novel title that is. And um, for those of you who run small nonprofits uh, for whom consultants and coaches may be a little bit um, above your uh, budget, um, please check out the uh, Nonprofit Leadership Lab, uh, which is a uh, online membership site with content and community for uh, leaders of uh, small nonprofits. And you can uh, sign up for the waiting list there at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Dot com. So that's it for me. Uh, and um, I enjoyed this podcast. And I, um, anytime I get the opportunity to talk to people who are bringing hope, joy, and beauty to the world, it feels like a good day at the office. We'll see you next time. Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.